Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. We're the Nelsons. I'm Lynette. And I'm Sean. In today's episode, we have an interview with Gina Krotz. And guys, I have to tell you that this is probably one of my favorite interview episodes that we've ever done. It's really good. So we're just going to jump right in and go straight to the interview and we'll recap with some of our thoughts afterward. We hope you enjoy this interview with Gina. We are here on the podcast with Gina. Gina, thank you so much for being here with us. Yes, of course. Well, to get started, would you mind just introducing yourself to us a little bit? Yeah. So my name is Gina Krotz. I am a birth mom, been a birth mom for 21 years. Also have three children that I have raised on my own as well. So my daughter is the one I placed. And then I also have two boys and another daughter. I've been in the adoption community for a long time. I ran my own nonprofit organization called Birth Mother Baskets for about 14 years and served on a lot of panels, did a lot of conferences and really kind of jumped into the adoption world when it wasn't open and no birth moms were speaking out and talking about their stories. And that's kind of what really drove me to stand up and have a voice is because I was like, there's got to be other people out here that know about adoption or know a birth mom, or I just needed someone to relate to. So I started just sharing my story and reaching out and finished writing actually my entire adoption story a couple of years ago and actually published that. And that was very healing for me as well. So I work a full-time job, a company called Honeybee Print and the president there. Uh, what it is, is like photo books. So you can jump on the website, make your own photo book, uh, prints, calendars, anything that's customizable that we actually print from our warehouse just in Utah. So I run that. I do that. That takes up the majority of my day along with running the kids everywhere. So I have the two in college, one who's a junior in high school, and then my youngest is in fifth grade. So I'm always at drill and wrestling and football. <laughs> You're in the thick All of it. Of yes. Yeah. When I'm not doing that, I'm obviously writing. I mean, that's really kind of my true passion. Um, I enjoy doing yoga. I have a pretty consistent meditation practice that I do every now and then I jump in and do a few guided meditations at our local salt cave that we have man-made salt cave. When I can actually do my own thing, that's what I like doing. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Fun. All right. Well, do you mind jumping in and sharing your adoption story with us? Yeah, of course. So I found out that I was pregnant when I was 19. Um, I was in college and had been dating my boyfriend for a couple of years when we found out. Uh, we were actually on a break when I did find out that I was pregnant. And so when we had the conversation about it, his kind of first reaction was like, oh, you should get an abortion and this will all just go away. And I distinctively, I don't know why, because I've had conversations with other people that I went to high school with, but I like remember this health class or something that we had where an adoption clinic came in and did like a presentation kind of, of what that kind of looks like when you do have an abortion. And I just remember sitting in that class thinking, oh my gosh, I don't think I could ever do that. And it stayed in my brain for some reason. So as I was having that conversation with him, I was just like, there's, there's no way, like I cannot 
that just doesn't seem like an option for me. So I moved home and kind of knew that I wasn't going to have birth dad support or he wasn't going to really be there. So as I think a lot of birth moms do, got super depressed for a couple of weeks and was kind of just in my room, like, I don't know what I'm doing and where I'm going and what's happening. And I remember my sister came in and she was like, you need to get your crap together. Like <laughs> you got to make some decisions. You got to get up on your feet. You got to, you know, you can't just keep laying here. And so I made the decision to actually move to Arizona to live with my brother. And this was like, a lot of people, when I tell them that are like, oh, your parents like shipped you off, which is totally not what happened. My parents were very supportive. I learned a lot more about my parents' side of it from actually writing the book after I entered that viewed them like years later. But at the time, everything seemed great. They were there. They were supportive. They supported me in moving to Arizona. And that's where I started to really consider adoption. I remember specifically, I was driving around one night and I'm like, I'm just like, I'm not going to stop until I've like made this decision of what I'm supposed to do. And I think I had met with, I ended up placing with LDS Family Services. So I think I had met with them a couple of times, but I can't really remember if I had or not. But I remember just driving around and thinking, I'm like, I have to make this decision. And so I just kept driving and driving, driving. I don't know if you've ever been to Arizona, actually, when the sky, like the sky there is so gorgeous. Wow. <laughs> I can still remember just the sun setting in everywhere I was at. I made this mental list in my mind of all the reasons why I wanted to keep her and all these reasons why I wanted to place. And as I was mentally like going through this list, I realized that like every reason that I wanted to keep her felt like reasons for me, it felt kind of like selfish reasons. And at the time, like literally one of the things on my list was like, I want to dress her in cute clothes. Like I was 19, like I was excited to have this kind of, doll to dress, you know, and I'm, I just remember thinking that and thinking, okay, this is, this is what I, I have to do this. This is what I'm going to do. So I met with LDS family services and started going through families <laughs> at the time, which it was so long ago. It was like one sheet of kind of stats is what I would call it. So like, you know, the dad is six, two and weighs this much, and this is ethnicity and it was just like a really basic kind of like resume almost. And then one page of a letter and maybe like a double-sided like scrapbook page. I mean, that was pretty much it. So I met with my social worker and she put like 10 down on the table. And I was just like, oh, so overwhelmed by all of it. Like, I don't even, <laughs> how do I even do this? I ended up taking four couples home and I kind of just like shoved them under my bed. I was like, I don't, I don't really want to deal with this. That was one step that felt very final. And actually there's like one thing to say, Hey, I'm going to place and this is my decision, but to actually pick the couple, that was, that was a difficult step for me. Uh, when I was living in Arizona, I was working two jobs and just staying busy. And I remember one night I was laying on the floor and I like kind of looked under my bed, it had been a couple of weeks and I saw the profiles and I was like, okay, I really need to take a look at these. And so then one of the families, the adoptive mom had actually been adopted herself. And I didn't know anything about adoption when I made the decision. No, but I didn't know anyone who was adopted. I wasn't, you know, I just didn't have that much knowledge about it. So the fact that she had been adopted, there was something about that that felt very comforting in knowing that my daughter would be able to ask her questions or just whatever, that she would have some type of knowledge about that situation and what was going on. And so I remember calling my mom and kind of reading her the profile and we having a discussion about it. And she's like, this feels good. Like it feels good to you. And 
So pick the family in the middle of actually picking the family, made the decision to also move home and moved in with my parents. And I got a phone call from the agency and they said, the couple that you picked, they're also pregnant. And at the time it was like, I don't know how it works now, but with LDS family services back then, it was like, if you were pregnant, they kind of took you off the list and they didn't want to tell LDS family services because they, she had miscarried so many times before. So they technically shouldn't have had even been on the list to begin with. And so they're like, Hey, you kind of have the opportunity to either place with them still, or totally pick a different family. And I was stressed. I was like, man, I don't, how do I just like pick again? You know, like, did that seems really weird. I remember talking to a friend about it and he was saying, he was like, I think that's cool. Like, okay. So now she gets to have a sibling. And I was like, Oh, okay. This is really like so much more simpler than I'm making it. And so made the decision to actually stay with them. And she ended up having a baby six weeks after I placed. So they grew up kind of like twins right before. I can't remember how close it was to placing, but back then we did the only time I actually met them, I don't remember what they called it, but we met for maybe like two hours. And that was the first time I had been face-to-face with the couple. And my mom came with me and I was traveling from Utah to Arizona because she had a high-risk pregnancy and I didn't. So we actually went to them and spent a couple hours just kind of getting to know them, asking questions, you know, just like a basic kind of what felt weird as like an interview almost, you know, like... It was really weird. (laughs) Um, But still felt really, really confident in my decision. That was one thing that like once I made it and felt very strong about it and had like this really good confirmation of it, I didn't really go back or jump back and forth at all. It still decisions along the way were still difficult, but there was never like, oh, I'm not going to do this. Right. I carried completely full term went into delivery a couple of days before my due date. And there were some complications with my delivery and stuff that happened. And so there wasn't this, I kind of had this like idea in my mind of like what you see in the movies where you like deliver and the baby's like put on your chest, right? And there's this whole loving moment. And that that didn't really happen. It was like, did the delivery and which was emotional and beautiful. And then she was kind of whisked away and there was complications with her and complications with me. And I remember feeling like really panicked that I wasn't going to like get that moment with her or really nervous that someone had kind of come and taken her and I was not going to have that moment. And I remember the social worker coming in and trying to like explain things to me while I was very emotional with what was going on. And they had actually moved me to the recovery room before I had even really gotten to see her and hold her. And I remember looking at my mom and I was like, I haven't even, I haven't even seen her. Like I don't, I haven't even held her. So my mom put me in the wheelchair and we went into the nursery and she had been hooked up to some tubes and stuff. So she had some breathing problems. The nurse kind of untangled her from the wires and stuff, you know, and put her in my arms. And the first thing I thought was, or that I heard was, this is not your baby. And it was so clear and so intense that no one could have prepared me for that. No one could have said like, this is the emotion you're going to feel, or this is because for me, and it was still there. I was kind of like, oh, what if I like, can't let her go? What if I can't? And I didn't want to, but it was so clear in my mind and so, so clear that this was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. 
And as beautiful as that was, and as much as it built my confidence to keep going on and making that decision, it was also really hard to realize that that I was kind of just this vessel to get her to earth. You know, I was writing quite a bit back then too. And that's when I actually ended up writing the My Little Butterfly poem that's kind of circulated around the adoption community, I think for a while. Our daughter's birth mom gave us that poem framed as like a placement present. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I ended up writing that like that night, like after I held her, I kind of went back to the room and it just just kind of flowed. I had a couple of days in the hospital with her. And then we ended up taking her home to my parents' house, which from now that I know seems to be really unusual, I think for a lot of birth moms, but um, we had a day, I think we did a full Sunday and placement was supposed to take place like on Monday, the next morning. And back then it was like, you had this choice of doing kind of a handoff or you would give the baby to your social worker and the social worker would give the baby to the adoptive couple. So because her adoptive mom was in that high-risk pregnancy, her adoptive dad had traveled to Utah to do kind of the handoff. So it was just him and I that did that part of it. But she came home to my parents' house and all of my family came and they all just, you know, got to hold her and spend time with her. And we took a ton of pictures and and the it, the entire time from delivery on just kind of felt like I was above my body. I don't feel like I was really present in what was going on. Like it was just kind of like going through the motions. And I remember talking to my social worker Sunday night. She was like, hey, like Monday comes. If you're not ready, you let us know. Like we're on your timeline. And And so we woke up Monday morning and I was like, if I don't do this now, there's no way. Like. I'm going to be able to let her go, you know? So we met at LDS Family Services and her adoptive dad came in and he is huge. He's like six, four, I think I should know this actually, but I just remember how big and strong and how tiny she looked like when I actually handed her to him and knowing that he would forever protect her and be there for her and just having that confidence, like, okay, this is, this is going to be okay. You know, it was really short and sweet, that kind of section of it. I did have time with her on my own kind of in the office there before he came in. But one of the really vivid memories too, is just driving home with my parents with that empty car seat was just like, oh, it's just torture. <laughs> I'm like, if someone could have just like thrown it in the trunk or like shoved it under a seat, like something that's like, that was something that was really hard as we all drove home was just kind of looking at and knowing she wasn't coming back and I wasn't going to be there. She wasn't going to be there. I spent a lot of time just in that part of it, kind of going through this grieving process that at the time is very, it's a disenfranchised grief, right? It's like, especially back then, nobody really had education on what the birth mom was experiencing because nobody was talking about it. It's always been such a, um, maybe a faux pas is the word I'm looking for of just so much guilt and shame wrapped around this pregnancy before you're married that I think there's been such a lack of education, especially 20 years ago when I placed, nobody really knew. And I remember looking at my mom and thinking like, she can't even help me. There, like, there's no way for her to fully understand what I'm going through. 
um, I got married shortly, like after, let's see, I had her in October and then I was engaged by November, the end of November, not to her, not to her birth father and married in February and pregnant again, like in May. So everything moved really, really quickly. And I think a part of that also had to do with just the emotions and everything of trying to find this space or fill this space that was really missing in my life. That December after is when I had this idea of, hey, I want to do some kind of like a service project. I was like, I had done one every year when I was in high school, some family or something. And I was like, this year for Christmas, I want to do something just for birth moms. And that's when I came up with the idea of the baskets that we started doing. Because when I left the hospital, I left with all the formula samples and the diaper bag and all of that stuff that like you don't ever use or need. And, you know, you're kind of like, why, why are you giving this to me? I think I turned around and just gave it to her adoptive parents, ended up doing gift baskets for birth moms. So when you're in the hospital, it was like, they would come and bring you a basket. It was full of bath salts and blankets and a letter from a birth mom. So you knew that you were not alone, just anything that seemed to be pampering. And I had a goal, I think 20, 40 baskets that I wanted to fill that first Christmas. And I literally, I mean, this is how long ago it was. I started flipping through like the yellow pages looking for companies that I was like, maybe they would have something they would donate and just calling people. And it, it exploded. The first Christmas, it was like insane. I ended up doing like 150 baskets or something. And, and then companies that couldn't donate that first Christmas kept calling me and saying, oh, are you still doing this? We want to donate. And that's how it all kind of spiraled into becoming a nonprofit and me speaking out and just this whole thing that was way bigger than I thought. But as far as the communication with with um, her parents and that whole part of it, back then with LDS Family Services, it was you had pictures and letters for the first five years. So I knew they were in Arizona, but I didn't know exactly where. Um, I wasn't allowed to know their last name. Every letter and everything that I sent went through LDS Family Services. They would read through it before they would send it. I mean, it was all screened, all of it. And for the first five years, it was great. We knew a lot about what was going on with her and she was very much a part of our lives and running the baskets helped a lot. I think was my grief. It was kind of like, I want her to know that we're still thinking about her, that she's still a part of our lives and, and really focusing on like serving the other birth moms was my way of kind of being like, Hey, I can't really reach out and be there for you. So I'm just going to kind of serve this community and make it a part of my life because that's that's all I could really do at the time. I do specifically remember one time actually LDS Family Services would call you and not to talk crap on LDS Family Services anyway, but it was just the processes of what they did back then, you know, and I'm they would call and say, Hey, you have a letter, you need to come down to the agency and pick it up or whatever. And I knew that my social worker read it, but I didn't realize that like everyone in the office was kind of reading them. Oh I remember walking in one day and like the secretary at the front desk, I was like, she was looking at pictures and reading something and she was a younger girl. And, and I said, Hey, I have, you know, I have a letter. This is my name. And she was like, Oh, and so she folded it up and put it in an envelope and handed it to me. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, are you serious? <laughs> like, I mean, it became kind of 
I can laugh about it now. I can laugh about a lot of this now because my story, as you know, has ended very, very well. But at the time, it kind of felt like my life was on show. It was like something, some entertainment for people when I'm like, hey, I'm really grieving here. And this is real life for me. And this is hard. This is how I communicate with my daughter. And you're getting to know all of this before I even see it. And that was really, that was really hard. Uh, as I stayed in the adoption community, I started to see the evolution of open adoption and these birth moms coming in and having more relationships with their parents. And that was really hard. It was like, I couldn't quite understand why they got to have that, but I didn't get to have that. You know, it was, it was frustrating at first. After the first five years, letters went to a letter and a picture every year on her birthday, but we weren't allowed to send anything. So it was only them sending communication to us, which seemed really weird to me at the time. I know now why that was the case, but we ended up getting just updates from from her parents. And I mean, as much as I love them, it was still like every year the letter was late and never came on time. It was like, it was just, it was difficult after that first five years to fill a part of her life really of what was going on. So I think it was shortly after she turned 10, my husband at the time was at work and he got a phone call and it ended up being her adoptive dad, which we didn't know he like knew where we lived or our names, like nothing. Right. So he's like, so my husband at the time calls me and he says, Hey, we need to talk when I get home from work. And I'm thinking like, what's going on? And I was pregnant with our third. I had had two miscarriages before that and was and was pregnant with Jet. And he came home from work and he said, Kaylin's adoptive dad called me at work today. And I was just like, what? And first, my first thought was she had passed, like something tragic had happened as with her. And he said, he called to tell me that um, they're getting divorced. And I was crushed. I mean, I'm not, I am now divorced, so I'm not naive in the sense that relationships end, but there was something about it when I made the decision too of, I didn't want to see her going back and forth from house to house, you know, and I felt like if I had chose to parent that I wasn't sure if her birth that would be coming back and how that relationship would be and what that would look like. And I think at the time too, and even probably still now, you get this idea of a birth mom like that your child's going to live this fantasy life that you have picked this perfect family and this perfect couple and she will have no trials and nothing bad will happen to them. And it's like this castle in the sky that's completely unattainable, but nobody had really talked to me about that or prepared me for that. And I remember being very, very upset and thinking how fortunate I was that I was pregnant at the time because I got really depressed about it. I didn't want to get up and take care of myself. I didn't want to, I was kind of just like, oh my gosh, especially because I got married so quickly after I was like, we could have kept her. We could have, you know, raised her on her own, worked together. Like we could have been a family, like all these thoughts of just, and like I said, I had never really gone back on my decision until that point when I was like, okay, this is, this is hard. This is different, you know? 
and it, it kind of died out and it just became, it was like, Hey, this is reality and this is what happens. And I've since found out a lot of information and stuff about that situation. But at the time it was, it was pretty tragic for me in thinking that this little castle that I thought I had sacrificed so much to give her was kind of now broken, you know, the year she turned 17, um, I'd always wanted to write my adoption story. It had just kind of been something that was always in the back of my mind. I had started it, but it was crap. My first draft was horrible, <laughs> horrible, horrible. And I was working in corporate America, running a, you know, an art studio at the time with a local scrapbooking company and just working nonstop. And I came home from work one day and told my husband at the time, I was like, I'm, I'm going to quit my job and write. And he was just like, what the crap? <laughs> I mean, he knew that I'd always wanted to, but he was just kind of like, uh, you're making good money that we need. <laughs> I'm supporting these kids. And I was like, I have to do it. Like if I don't, I've got to do it. So I quit in August, the year that she turned 17 and really started diving back into my story and every detail of it. And I was lucky enough that I had journaled through 90% of it. So it was just as difficult to go back and kind of read through. And like I said, I had gone and interviewed my parents and asked them a lot of questions of just like, what did you feel when I came and told you that I was pregnant? And what were your thoughts? And one of the things that was really shocking to me was one, the guilt that they had of feeling like my dad, actually, that was the first thing he said was, I felt like I failed you when you first told me. And he didn't speak to me after I told him I was pregnant for like two weeks. And I was like, oh man, he's mad, which it was really more him processing everything. He's very quiet, man. He's not confrontational at all. But for me, I was like, oh, my dad is so upset. Like we, he's not even talking to me, you know, and it wasn't even until 17 years later that I started to really understand more what that science was about. And it was his own guilt, like as a father. And the other thing that was really shocking was the way the community acted towards them. And I didn't realize the backlash that they were kind of getting that of that as my parents. And even finding out that I was, that I had picked adoption, there was a couple people that even said like, how could you let her do that? I can't believe you're supporting her. And, and I didn't know that. I, I had no idea any of that was going on until years later. So I started writing my book in August because I had stayed in the community so much. Uh, she was very much a part of our life. So we had pictures of her in our house. My kids have all known from the time they could talk that she was a part of our family or was a sister that, you know, lived in Arizona, basically. So lots of times my kids would maybe like think that they saw her at school or at the bus stop or they'd be like, mom, I saw Kaylin today. Like, I swear it was her. And I would have to have these conversations about this, right? It was October that same year that I had decided to quit my job and start writing the book. My daughter that I raised, Evie, we were up at Trolley Square. She had tried out for this dance production with like against 60 other girls and she wants to be a professional dancer. So I was like, hey, why don't we go up to this audition just to kind of give you an idea of how auditions run and and we'll see how it goes. And she ended up making it, which was amazing. So I would go up and sit and just kind of wait for her for three or four hours as she did these practices. And this day in October, it was a couple of weeks after Kaylin had just turned 17. 
and Evie and I were there and the particular practice that we were at, I was actually in the storefront. So the old storefront had turned into kind of like a dance studio and that's where they would practice. And so people that were in the mall would walk by and kind of watch them or whatever. They were trying on costumes and wigs and doing all this stuff. So I was happened to be sitting inside the, inside the studio and Evie's looking out into the hallway where all the mall people are walking around. And she's like, mom, I, that girl standing out there watching looks just like Kaylin. And I was like, oh, really? Like, I'm just kind of helping her with her wig. And I mean, my kids had said it so many times that I didn't even look back to see. And she was like, yeah. And she was like, no, really, she's in a BYU sweatshirt. And at the time, I thought she wanted, Kaylin wanted to go to school, law school at BYU. So when she said that, I was kind of like, oh, wait, like I could be her. And so I just like turned back and I don't even see her. I see her adoptive dad and he's just kind of like, hey. And I mean, I mean, keep in mind, I haven't seen her since she was four days old, not in real life anyway. So I turn back to Evie and I'm like, that's her like that. And I was just, I grabbed the mom next to me who I didn't even know. It was just some random dance mom. And I'm like, the baby that I placed for adoption 17 years ago is standing in the hallway. And she's just looking at me like, what the crap? (laughs) And I'm like, I I don't know what to do. What do I do? I do I I had been so accustomed to these rules that have been set around our relationship and around what I was allowed to do, right? So I get up and I go to the door and I stop. Cause I'm like, okay, she's not 18. I don't know if they want me to be out there. I have no idea. Is she ready? Is she not? Am I ready? Like I just kind of freeze at the door and you can't see out the window from the door where I was standing. So I'm like, I'm just going to stand here for just a second, just to give him the opportunity to make the decision. And I definitely didn't want to walk out and see them walking away. So I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to wait for just a minute. And the dance mom after she goes, you, when you turned, like you got to the door and you turned and looked like out to the dancer, she goes, your face was just pure shock. Like, holy crap. So I wait, I don't know how long it was. It was probably only like 30 seconds, but it felt like forever. And I kind of lean over and look out the window again to just see if they're there. And I see her dad and he's like, going like this, like, come on out. So I open up the door and by the time I'd open up the door, she was walking in too. So she was like right there and we just hugged and my whole body's just like shaking. Even when I tell all these years later, I still can't like the emotion is so strong, but we, it was like being whole again. I don't know any other way to describe it, but just there had been constantly this hole in my life and I, for a long time tried to feed it and fill it with anything and everything until I just accepted it was there and then when I saw her it was just it was overflowing with just love and there are not proper words to even describe it I don't know how to even I would love to give that to people to be like this is the strongest feeling I think we can have here on earth of just unconditional love completely So we hug and we're both just looking at each other like, what is going on? She happened to be there with her adoptive dad, her brother, 
And then she had, they had another um, sibling as well. So she had a younger sister that was also full biological. So she was the only one adopted and then her cousin. And so they were there visiting her cousin and decided to just walk around Trolley Square, like randomly the same evening that we ended up being there. And they could hear the music and the commotion, everything that was going on. So they stopped to watch and that was what happened. So her dad looked at me and just said, we're not in a rush. Like if you guys want to go take a half hour and just talk or, and I remember looking at him and thinking, I don't, I don't want to go by myself with her. (laughs) I was so nervous. I thought, what am I going to say? Like, I just remember feeling panicky, like, okay, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do here. It was just so, so unusual. And so not expected at all. So we find a bench and we sit down and she said, I knew this was going to happen. And I was like, what? Like how? And she's like, well, I started seeing butterflies everywhere, like just all over the place. And she had, we gave her the poem, you know, when I placed. And so she had the poem and knew that that's what we called her was let a butterfly. And, and then she had had a lesson at church where one of her leaders had brought in an article or something. And it happened to be one that I had written. And she said to Kaylin, she's like, I think this is your birth mom. Cause there was a little like picture of me on there. And Kaylin was like, yeah, yep. That's my birth mom. Like, so she said, when my dad came to me and said, we're going to go to Utah. Cause she knew I lived in Utah for fall break. She goes, I just, I just knew, I just knew something was going to happen. That's amazing. That is so amazing. Wow. Yeah, like- <laughs> it was It is the, I still don't believe it. And I'm the one that was sitting in it. Like I can't even, the whole idea of me just quitting my job and really jumping into writing the book and then reprocessing all the grief and everything that I had gone through and trying to heal that really child in me so that I could continue on with my life. And then for it to end that way, it was like, oh, this is how the book's going to end. Like, that I literally just, it comes full circles and it was, it was, it's really unbelievable. It really is. So her adoptive dad, his side of the story kind of is that the kids were standing there watching and he walked up and saw the back of my head. And at the time I had kind of like a bohawk and he was like, nobody else has their hair like that. So he's kind of looking and he walked to the side more to see if he could see my profile And he was like, okay, that's her. And he said, by the time he'd walked back to the kids, he noticed that Evie had noticed it was that it was them. And so he turned to Kaylin and said, your birth mom's in that room. Do you want to meet her? And she was like, yeah, I do. So that's what was happening while Evie and I were processing and I'm standing at the door freaking out. Like, do I walk out there? And, and so we did, we chatted for a half hour and we exchanged phone numbers and I remember putting her phone, like her number in my phone. And she's like, do you know how to spell my name? I'm like, yes, I know how to spell your name. <laughs> <laughs> we just kind of laughed about it. I was like, yes, I do. I've been writing your name for a long time. <laughs> um, and they, they left and I, I got a text from her maybe five minutes after she walked away and said, I love you. Let's not go another 17 years before I see you again. And I knew at that point, like everything was going to change. 
Um, the first year I still kept kind of this communication of like, she's not 18. She's still living at home. I'm going to let her kind of drive how much we talk and what happens and what that looks like. And then once she decided to move out and go to school and kind of started this own life, her and I started to really build this relationship that's become really the, the most beautiful thing. I mean, I've gone to see her and I've stayed with her and her friends and I've met her boyfriend. I know her life and I know her and it's, it's been amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's incredible. I like, can't even imagine, like even in a Hallmark movie, like that doesn't happen. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just, you know, looked out the window and oh, there she is. There she is. <laughs> oh man. I know. I still, like I said, I still can't even, I really can't believe it myself. I feel like the luckiest, but I also feel a lot of guilt in the sense that I get to have this story because I worked for so long with birth moms that like, this is not the story. This is not how it ends or open adoptions become closed or relationships with the adoptive parents that they thought were healthy or not. You know, I mean, you name it, I've heard it. Yeah. Every story, every placement is different, which I'm sure you guys have seen as well. And it, there has been a lot of me trying to process and realize that it's okay for me to have this story because it's so hard for me to think about the other birth moms that, that don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why I get it, but I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That was fantastic. Yeah. We uh, we have some questions, some follow-up. You mentioned when you were telling your story about, you know, finding out you were pregnant and not really being familiar at all with adoption. Anything that you would add around that? Anyone that you knew that had placed or anything else yeah. at all you knew? Like, what, what was your knowledge? I mean, basically what I knew was kind of what you saw on TV. I mean, I knew that there were a couple kids at school that were adopted, but I didn't realize, like what that meant or what a birth mom even was. I mean, I didn't basically the strongest knowledge I had was from that abortion presentation. And it was like, if you don't do abortion, then your next option is adoption. And I just remember that sticking in my head, like, Oh, okay, cool. Like, but that was really it. I didn't have anything else. So what do you wish that somebody had told you before your first daughter was born? I think probably more just the emotions, the emotional aspect of the entire process. I won't lie and say it hasn't affected every area of my life because it has. It definitely made me a better mother. I mean, it drove me to also be a better person too. I think I'd wanted, I didn't want her to find me one day and not want to be a part of my life. So it really drove me in just becoming something that she or someone that she'd want to be a part of. And I don't know if that drive would have been there without that, but I wish somebody would have said, Hey, this, it will stay with you. You know, it's a decision that doesn't go away and it affects you as a mother. It affects you as a wife and as a friend and, and, and every, you know, it rippled through my entire family, rippled through my parents and even my niece who very much remembers all of it. Like Kaylin ended up coming to Utah a year after I ran into her and she got to meet the rest of my family. So she spent time with my parents. And in fact, after I saw her at the mall, I called my parents and said, Hey, like, 
are you sitting down? Like, I got to tell you this, right? And my dad, of course, they had this initial crazy shock, but my dad said, before I die, my hope is to stand in the kitchen with her, have this conversation. And I remember feeling that pressure, like, I don't know if I can give that to you. Like, that's a lot. But a year later that he ended up standing in my kitchen, talking to her and meeting everybody. And, but I wish somebody would have said, like, here are some skills here are some things that you're going to experience and that it's, it's not going to go away and it's not going to be this fantasy or perfect life. So kind of on the same lines, what type of pre-placement and post-placement counseling did you receive or was, was available to you back then? Oh man, there wasn't much. I mean, I think at the time LDS family services was doing the best they really knew how to do. I think, I mean, I had a social worker that was assigned to me and we did do kind of like groups with the other birth moms that were in the agency, but it felt more, it was more of a conversation of what's the decision you're going to make. It wasn't geared towards just moms that were placing or just moms that were um, parenting. It was kind of like having this discussion of what this looks like after it it's nothing really I mean I'm sure I had a few sessions I think with my social worker after but not the therapy that I really needed which is also why I started becoming more of a voice because it was like I need someone who can relate to this I need someone who who knows what this feels like you know very very minimal so you mentioned after Kaylin was born there were health complications and things weren't going really how Mm -hmm. you wanted And so looking back at placement, is there, and that whole time in the hospital and everything, Mm -hmm. is there anything that you wish had happened differently that you had control over or, or that anyone had control over, not just you? Yeah, I think it was just probably more someone there who had been through the process to be like, you know, my mom didn't know that I was in there panicking after delivery and they sweep her away. And I'm thinking they took her. Like they're not going to bring her back because they did that a lot too, you know, back in the day of, and I know now because I've talked to a lot of birth moms of just like you would deliver and thought it was going to be one way and they would just take your baby. You never see him again. But it was like, at the moment it was like, my mom didn't know that that was a worry for me. So I'm like, even just have someone there like, Hey, maybe this emotion's coming up for you right now, or what are you feeling? Or just being a little more attentive to the process of this is what's happening. As far as, placement stuff that goes I guess really honestly I just wish everything would have been more open I mean I would have been happy to have them the adoptive couple like in the delivery room and more a part of I mean how beautiful would it have been had I've all been at my parents house you know when my family was coming over to say goodbye to her and take pictures and I can see that now like I wish that would have been an option but yeah that's probably probably just some more support of someone who'd actually been through it So I know that you've shared your story for, I mean, a long time that you were a pretty Mm -hmm. open kind of advocate for birth mothers in the beginning of your story and for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess with all of that experience now under your belt, what are some things that you wish others either new to the adoption community or outside the adoption community? what What do you hope that they would know or come to know about birth moms? I think that one, every adoption story and every birth mom is so different. It's so different. And 
the empathy that I think is needed around the entire process, not only just for birth moms, but for adoptees and for adoptive couples. And I mean, this is a situation and something that we have just created. A lot of people don't really understand the emotions and what we all go through. I mean, because I know that there's a lot on your guys' side as well and for your kids. And so I'm like, I think it's just having this empathy and understanding of non-judgment to why the decisions were made or why you chose adoption, where I chose adoption and what that looks like for your family. At the time when I felt like nobody was speaking out, I just had this thought of like, there's so much love circled around what's happening in my decision. And I felt so confident in it that I'm like, why should I feel ashamed of that, of something that came so purely from my heart? And at the time of what I felt was the best decision as her parent to make that decision. So I think it's the biggest thing would probably just be empathy to why people make the decision that they make. When your daughter was 10, you got that phone call about Mm -hmm. how her adoptive parents were getting divorced. And after that, did you ever find out how they got your contact information? Was there any kind of conversation about, hey, maybe this could open up? Yeah, there was, it kind of opened up a little bit after that, um, more with her adoptive dad than with her mom. Um, He started kind of emailing a little bit, giving us a little more information about what was going on with her and and the situation and stuff. He said he always just kept track of where we were at in case he needed to know for any emergency or anything. And I don't know specifically how that happened. I just know that he always, I guess, knew where we were because I was so much more in the adoption community too. I didn't realize that he had been following that entire time. He knew what we were doing with the baskets and where I had been speaking and kind of been following all of it. So it was, it was pretty cool actually, but I don't know how I have no idea. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. I'm still just wrapping my mind around you. (laughs) But I mean, I guess, I guess it does make sense. Like if you were really kind of prominent in the adoption community at the time and kind of this face for birth mothers and helping be an advocate for birth mothers and, and that, it would be easier to see you in the public space and kind of yeah. have an idea what well, you were doing. But I still. mean, he knew my parents' names. I think he just got really investigative and figured it out. I, yeah. We didn't have Facebook back then to do like Facebook stalking. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that how... makes me feel really old. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so crazy how different it is. It's really weird to so look back different. and think that was 21 years ago or so. And yeah. It's so different. It's yeah. so different. It really, I mean, I really watched it evolve, honestly. And one of the reasons why I decided to step away from birth mother baskets too, is because there was a lot of birth moms that started to start their own nonprofits or really speaking out and it became a lot more open. There was like this need of as much healing. I don't think once there became this open family unit of everybody. And I just didn't feel like I was as needed as it started to open up and become more. And a lot of that happened to around the divorce too, of just kind of feeling like, I'm not sure that I can have a positive voice right now for it to be effective and and prominent in the way that I wanted it to be. So I did step away for quite a while. So you mentioned leaving your full-time job to start writing this book. 
and that ultimately led to you meeting, which is awesome. Um, tell us a little bit about that process of writing and maybe a little bit about the book and where people can find that if they're interested. So the writing, I mean, the writing is, there's something just like so romantic about writing. I don't know why I love it. I just do. I, I thought I would actually love the ending piece more, but it's actually the entire journey, which is so cliche. I mean, that's how it always is, right? Yeah, I just really dove into journals and getting down to the nitty gritty of emotions of making the decision to place and even just the emotions of finding out that I was pregnant and uh, growing up in a religious community and how that affected things and how it played into raising our kids and the mom that I was and um, really kind of living this life of grief that I didn't realize was even grief for a long time, I think. But it's just more detailed, a lot more emotional of the entire process of what what I went through and dealing with agencies and letters and um, conversations with people who didn't agree with what I was doing and how I felt about doing birth mother baskets and some stories behind that too. And then ultimately, like I said, just finally running into her and, and filling this kind of hole in my heart. And, you know, there's some stuff in there about the therapy that I went through and what I learned in that process as well. It is something that I just knew I would always do. I love that it's there. I don't typically promote it that much. It's just kind of in this space and I'm glad that I have it. And my, all my kids now have read it when we actually did the book launch. I was 19 when I got pregnant with Kaylin and I finished the book right before her 19th birthday. So we did this huge book launch on her birthday and she was there and her adoptive mom was there and it was, I mean, it was just so incredible. So, but you can get it on Amazon. So the printed version there, or you can actually do it on Kindle as well. And remind us the title of it. A Seemingly Unfillable Heart. Okay. Well, we'll put a link to it in our show notes if people are interested. Cool. And it's been fascinating to listen to your story too. So Good. I'm pretty sure I'm going to go buy it right when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I hope so. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> awesome. So how do you think placing your first child affected parenting and your perceptions and feelings about parenting with your younger kids? Oh, yeah. I think it changed everything, really. It became this understanding of uh, realizing how precious that relationship is that not everyone has that, that it's not just, you know, when we think about like building a family and, and going through that and becoming pregnant and how, it's like, you don't realize the complications that come up from that. It's just this story when you're little, like, Oh, I'm going to be a mom. And you don't realize like how many bumps in the road can affect that, you know? So I felt this incredible amount of gratitude that I was able to, to do that for one I had so we actually ended up having a few miscarriages so I had one right after my oldest so we had Kaylin and then we had JD and then I miscarried then we had Evie and I had two miscarriages before we had Jet and so I was also very familiar with the loss and the grief that came from that and the, the last two I was actually pretty far along and so there was we I did a couple of DNCs and stuff like that and so I realized how much motherhood is a gift and how quickly it can be taken as well. So in the beginning, there was a lot of times, I remember JD got really sick 
um, when he was younger. And I remember just pleading with God or the universe or whoever, like, please do not take him from me because I thought I was kind of destined to not be a mom. Um, and I think a lot of that came from that first idea of like, Hey, this is, this is not your baby. Like this is, and I just thought, Oh my gosh, if you, if you take another one from me, I don't know if I can do it again, you know? And I just, and he wasn't even that sick. It wasn't even a logical thought. And I remember after that thinking, this is very deeply rooted in me that I have this fear that they will die or someone will take them. Or I would have dreams a lot that they would be taken from me. And, and even still, actually, I mean, 21 years later, when things are really going good in my life, I will still have very similar dreams of that happening. And I think that's just kind of the trauma around it. But it just brought a lot more gratitude. It made every moment more precious because I knew it wasn't something that everyone got to experience and I knew how quickly it could be taken. So in the adoption community, from the time where we were taking a baby away from their birth mother from the hospital and they never see them again to where we are now, there's been a lot of progress, but the adoption community still faces a lot of challenges. What are some of those challenges that you still see and maybe any thoughts or recommendations for how we might improve that still? I think one thing that even I still deal with and I see some of my other birth moms who placed when I did is the open adoptions becoming closed for some reason or not knowing the reason that all communication just all of a sudden stops, you know? And I think really the biggest thing from my side and where I'm at is just that communication between us as the birth mom and the adoptive couple and how to keep that relationship healthy and how to kind of have that same empathy for each other that we also want everyone else to see around the idea of adoption and what it really is. I think it's really easy to just kind of make judgments on people's decisions and and it's hard to keep that unity, but just you can never have too many people who love your kid, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't Absolutely. matter. It's just kind of like that sometimes I think about that and I'm like, man, I wish that my three kids had some birth mom that was like, I want to just spoil you rotten and think about you all the time. And so I think more the issue and what's going on is just continue to educate ourselves on how to keep that open and keep that unity and keep it healthy for everybody so that it can stay open. I love that. Yeah, me too. It's a great thought. All right. Is there anything else that you want to talk about today? I don't think so. <laughs> I said a lot. It was oh, it was amazing. so good. It was so good. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being You're with welcome. us. No yeah. problem. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Open Adoption Project. And thank you so much to Gina for sharing her story and so many of her thoughts with us today. I love how raw and how honest Gina is about all of the things that she was going through and all of these feelings and emotions. We actually just got our copy in the mail of her book. It's called A Seemingly Unfillable Heart, and it's by Gina Crotts, C-R-O-T-T-S. 
And we've only read a little bit so far, and it's really, really good. We highly recommend it. You can get it on Amazon. We'll put a link to Amazon in the show notes. I love so much of what Gina shared with us. A couple things resonate with me or kind of sticking with me. And one that I want to highlight is just what she was talking about at the end where we need to do all that we can in the adoption community to make sure that communication between adoptive parents and birth parents is as clear as possible and open yeah for sure especially when we promise openness or when when openness is promised in a situation to keep the promises that we're making yeah just follow through with your promises yeah i really like that 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 sentiment is just really stuck with me from this episode yeah i agree that's so important And honestly, I mean, just jaw-dropping turn of events and her reunification story with her daughter was incredible and beautiful and just wow, right? Yeah, I I mean, you heard my reaction during the, the episode, but I can't even like comprehend how, how many moving parts had to come together for that to happen. Yeah, so incredible. And yeah, she's, just a wonderful person. We loved talking to her and we're so happy that we got to share part of her story with you today on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode.